the Anton Savage Show Sunday. Brought to you by PwC. Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. On News Talk. We begin with some good news, and that is that you will have heard from Alex uh, at the 10 o'clock news bulletin that Emily Hand is free after a 50-day ordeal. Of course, the nine-year-old girl taken hostage on the 7th of October. Her father led to believe in the early days that she was probably dead. Um, And in one way, Thomas Hand saying that that was a relief because the thought of her being held captive possibly indefinitely was such a horrendous thought. Well, it is no longer indefinite because Emily Hand last night travelled across the Rafa crossing in part of uh, one of the humanitarian pauses agreed between Israel and Hamas and she was reunited with her father, Thomas Corse himself, uh, born in Dublin. And you heard the clip there of... Uh, a very tearful Thomas and uh, a very relieved, I imagine, Emily uh, in each other's arms, uh, filled with relief after her release. And he has confirmed to the Department of Foreign Affairs that uh, she is all well and good. And of course, there are further calls among the political system now for the release of all of the hostages. But that's the, the good news. Emily finally free after a 50-day Hamas ordeal. And of course, the other good news happened last night in the Three Arena. So if you were listening yesterday, you will have heard us talking to Eddie Hearn about the fight and him saying that it was sort of do or die for Katie Taylor and that if she won this uh, Croke Park return was on the cards to uh, make it potentially best two out of three with us is Kieran Cunningham who is the chief sports writer for The Star. For those who didn't see the fight, Kieran, give us a bit of a praise. Well, uh, to be honest, Anton, uh, 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 you'll have to forgive me. I might start speaking in tongues shortly because my mind is scrambled all night. Because <laughs> it was one of the most, one of the most extraordinary sporting events I've ever been at, and you know, over thirty years in the business have been, you know, Olympics, World Cups, Champions League finals, World Cup soccer, rugby, etc. And this was up there with anything. Like the atmosphere was unbelievable, and what both sides produced, and particularly Katie Taylor. At 37, you know, having stepped up in weight, having been comfortably beaten in the first fight. And if you go through all the previews, like most people, and, you know, some really, really good boxing judges and ex-fighters, etc., thought she would lose again. But from the start, like even during the week, there was something different about Katie Taylor. This week, the past week, and the fight itself was fought in her terms. I don't think that was the case back in May. I think all the hype up at the homecoming, etc., all the sideshows, I think that sapped a little bit out of her, but it was just an extraordinary night and there is a very good chance we'll have another one of them in Crow Park next year. I mentioned speaking yesterday to Eddie Hearn and one of the things that he said was that what he, the expectation and the, what was necessary from Katie Taylor was that she came out of the blocks hard and that she came out of the blocks fast. Is that what she delivered? Well, funny enough, she did, but at the same time, uh, uh, Cameron won the first round and she had she knocked her down, even though it wasn't ruled as a knockdown. It was a very strange decision by the referee. So Cameron actually started pretty strongly, but the rounds after that, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth, uh, Taylor started piling them up. You know, Cameron came strong again then, but uh, t- 
Taylor near the end, like the ninth round, she came, she dug it out. She looked quite gassed, like it was such a physically intense fight. And she has, um, you know, she's been through a few wars in the last couple of years. But she dug out a huge round in the ninth. And as as not for the first time, the you know the judges' scores were a bit odd. One of them had it as a draw. One had uh, Katie Taylor won it by six rounds, but the other one was closer. You know, it was one by two, one two rounds, which is probably what most people would have thought that she, you know, she got the very comfortably. And even if that knockdown knockdown had been factored into the equation, she would have won by a round. So she was, to, she was to a what deserving winner. To what do you attribute that disparity in the scores? Because it's one thing for, there's always minor conflict in judges scoring, but to have a disparity between a six round victory versus a draw seems a bit extreme. I cannot, cannot honestly answer it. Like, you know, boxing people uh, tear their hair out over it. You know, and, and you know to become a referee or a judge, you know, you have to, you know, you, it's quite a rigorous process. You know, you have to be, you know, you're tested in your knowledge, and you know to get to that degree, where the level when you're judging a World Cup or a World Championship badge, you're supposed to be elite. So that there's such a disparity. You know, it's just some judges just look at things differently. Like, uh, like in the last fight. Cameron was much busier, threw far more punches, but Taylor actually landed more. You know, so some some judges are blown away by a busy fighter who hasn't actually been very effective. And I think it often it just comes down to individual preferences. So, are we looking at Croker for the best two out of three? Well, they'll, they're try, they're definitely pushing for it. Now, the fact that you know, as you say, Eddie Hearn said it to you yesterday. Katie Taylor said it in the ring straight afterwards, and they expanded on it in the press conference later on. Um, and they're throwing it out, like Eddie Hearn is throwing out there that they have to be more realistic about, uh, you know, the cost. So, you know, he's trying to put pressure on the GA to to lower the, the hiring cost uh, because, you know, it's substantially different. It's, it's more expensive than similar venues, say, in London, but everything in Dublin is bloody expensive, as you know. So it's, uh, and there, there are definitely GA would have security concerns because it's a very different kind of event to what they normally do. And a lot of money would it be spent on security, and they think that should be paid for by the promoters, not by Pro Park. Well, we will see. In the meantime, we'll focus on a very good victory uh, last night, and it's worth mentioning as well, of course, that Katie Taylor in the post-match or the post-fight press conference um, went out of her way to talk about the uh, victims of the attack on uh, Parnell Square uh, during the week and to express sympathy. Which, at a point where she was obviously at her most elated, it goes to the type of person that she is. That was Kieran Cunningham, um, who is the chief sports writer with the Star. I'm joined by Noreen O'Sullivan, the former Garda Commissioner, Conor Lenehan, uh, former Minister of State and Business Advisor, and Peter Leonard, uh, barrister and presenter of the Business Post's Law in Trial podcast. And on the topic of the Business Post, there's a very striking picture on the front of the Business Post. They have given it over to a picture of the burned out Lewis and what looks like the wreckage of the burned out bus beside it from, I think it must be Friday morning because dawn is just breaking and the clean-up is going on after the events of Thursday. We will talk about those in a second. Um, first, uh, worth just noting the, the bit of good news in respect of, of Emily Han, Peter. Huge relief to see the Oh, sure. Released. It's absolutely wonderful news, Anton. I mean, it must have been absolutely horrific 50 days in captivity. 
Um, and, you know, you can just be just the joy seeing her released and back into the arms of her family uh, after such a traumatic and horrific experience. You just hope that down the line that she can assimilate back into family life and become a normal little girl again. Uh, no, it was absolutely horrific. And for all the hostages that are released, and obviously there's a wider context as well. Uh, Although this, I assume, that, is a good sign in the wider context as yes. well, because it does show that diplomacy, I mean, the, the um, um, US president congratulating the work done by Qatar and a number of other players in this so that it does show that some level of diplomacy is functioning. And the hope is that, I mean, this initial ceasefire that has been announced for maybe four or five days, as this, you know, good faith, as the hostages are released, that it can be extended. And that's it. And let the diplomats do their work, let the UN do its work, and hopefully, you know, peace can be brought to what has been an absolutely horrific scenario. Meanwhile, acres and acres of coverage in print and on broadcast in relation to the analysis of what happened on Thursday. 20 million cleanup, but full cost likely to be much higher because I know it is small in the big scheme of the impact on people. But this happened, of course, on one of the biggest retail days of the year and effectively shut down the city for the entire weekend, which would have had a huge impact on businesses in and around the uh, city. Um, Helen McEntee under fire over policing failures, how the Business Post describes it. The Mail says ministers told Garda chiefs to get tough behind-the-scenes contact made after mayhem. There is much to discuss. Conor Lennon, the logical place to start is what was the actual root cause of this? Because it is being attributed to effectively two or three separate things. A rise of the far right, a disenfranchised community who have been ignored for too long and general lawlessness in Dublin that has been building over the last number of years. Which of it is it? Well, I think it's a combination of all of the above. But I think think it's important. I think Paul Williams, who's a very experienced commentator on crime and crime issues, is very at pains yesterday to point out that we shouldn't validate this by saying it's a far-right conspiracy. I mean, certainly some elements of these people gathered a protest when the rumour went around about that horrific uh, stabbing of the children. And that rumour certainly online and otherwise prompted other people to join. But to actually validate this and say that the far right are kind of orchestrating these things is actually attributing them and validating them in a way that they have more power than they actually do. And I think one of the dangers, and I noticed that the Garda Commissioner even was talking about fueled by far-right ideology. I think that sort of dignifies them in a way and gives them and attributes to them a power they simply don't have because there's very little evidence. And and if there is evidence of this, then it points up a huge Garda failing in intelligence terms. If the far-right are as powerful as being made out in some of the knee-jerk reactions here, we certainly have a big, big do, do problem not, in Ireland. Do, can and they I think, not create I think, the nodal point, the flashpoint on which think, this builds? I think the more important point in dwelling on the far right and their influence in this is the systematic, over many, many years, I pointed this out back in 2018, neglect of O'Connor Street and the north inner city. And it's not just about policing mistakes here. It's policing neglect. It's local authority neglect. If you talk to people like Mannix Flynn, uh, the independent councillor for that area, He'll tell you the exact same that I'm telling you now. There's absolute, enormous neglect. And it's really, the, the, the contrast couldn't be starker that when you go across O'Connell Bridge into the south side, you're in this lovely, beautiful environment that's well policed. There's very little public order uh, issues on, on the south inner city. Uh, there's loads of them on the north inner city. And we know that even the minister here is really without any real excuses here. The Minister for Justice walked down Talbot Street last July after an attack on an American tourist, a vicious attack by teenage youngsters. 
and declared that the city was safe. And I think anybody, and I lived, by the way, right beside O'Connor Street during the COVID and the lockdown, anybody who says that that area is safe and a safe part for people to be walking around. Yeah, but any time this gets nonsense. Okay, no, 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 I think but, it's really but, important. But let me, uh, we had a Minister of Justice last okay, July. Connor, no, no, but please let me finish no, no, this. But, 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 said this I've you a huge okay, amount of time. No, no, but let you, me just okay, ask you a yesterday question. Connor, she said it's not Connor, safe. hang on for a second. Whenever this gets discussed, people will say, hang on a minute, whatever about there being a community that has not been sufficiently served by the state, there are regularly instances where you can point to communities who, where you have poverty, where you have disenfranchisement, where you don't have looting and thuggery of this extent. So is it sufficient reason to say this is a function of poverty and, and, and uh, lack of attention? No, I'm not saying, I'm saying both. Lack of attention in policing terms, lack of attention in social terms, social neglect and social decay has been let happen in this part of the city. And we're now, last week or this week, we've seen the consequences of that. And it's both lax policing and lax approach by the political authorities. Going back 10, 15 years. You know, it's, it's not something that's recent, but it's got recently it's become more pronounced because of immigration. And of course, this is the thing that people don't wish to discuss, but it has to be discussed. Our population went up by 2% in 12 months. And there's an absolute, absolutely genuine reserve concern that we've accepted, for instance, 100,000 Ukrainians, found them accommodation very quickly. And people out there in Dublin say, well, why can't my child get a house as quickly as these people can get? And so I'm not, is it your I'm not, view I'm not, then I'm not, that I'm not criticising the generosity of the government in accepting refugees from Ukraine, but you can only but manage Connor, what sorry, you can is it your view, from. therefore, that this should have been predicted? Yes, I think it, I, I myself warned about it back in 2018. Many other people have been warning. And if you listen to people like Mannix, Flynn, a councillor for the year, they've been talking about this for a long time. It, it's fallen on deaf ears. And I think anybody who knows anything about policing knows there's a distinct difference between the South Side and the North. Well, a person who doesn't know something about policing is former um, Guard the Commissioner. Noreen, from your perspective, the the predictability of this and the the root cause, is this a function of the far right successfully fermenting uh, discord and dissent? Or is this a function of a community that has been marginalised for too long boiling over? I think it's all of the above and I would agree with Connor in that I think it's it's a very complex issue. But I think before we go there, Anton, something I'd like to touch off of, you know, you mentioned about the coverage right across the newspapers, not just our own national newspapers, but it's international coverage. And I think we're ending the decade of, of centenary celebrations where Ireland was showcased in a really positive way, how much we have developed as a democracy and as a republic. And then to find that on the place, the garden across from the Garden of Remembrance, we had a very brave 30-year-old woman that tried to defend three children who were attacked in broad daylight. And we now have a five-year-old girl who is in a very critical condition, remains in hospital, as is this very courageous person who was our car- the carer of the children who tried to do that. So I think just in context, this is actually what we should focus on. Absolutely, events after that. So should it have been... So let me tell you, when I was actually walking on the opposite side of uh, Parnell Square that very day, I arrived home probably a half an hour after this happened to hear what had happened. And straight away, my reaction was that you must anticipate that this is going to be used as a trigger point and a flashpoint for those that wish to cause uh, disarray, mayhem and everything else. So that was my initial reaction when I heard the news breaking. So I think 
what you have, and I, again, I think we have to be very careful as well. This happened on the north uh, inner city, and it's uh, an area that I'm very familiar with. I policed there for several years. Uh, I have very close relationships with the community there, a community that I really admire. A lot of investment has been made in that community. And indeed, a lot of the community representatives there, they have put a lot of work into actually rebuilding their community. So I think we have to be very, very careful that actually we don't attribute this to the northern city. I think it's a separate thing. It happened to, It happened there, but it's actually not attributable to the northern city. But do you city. therefore then believe that this is the far right coalescing people from around the wider city or do you believe that it is a relatively small amount of the far right that tapped into something that was in that area, that there was a desire within the area for a bit of rioting and looting, which is what we saw? I think there are people that desired and were opportunistic in actually coming out to riot and loot and get what they wanted to get from it, which was to cause mayhem, A, but also, as we saw with Arnott's and with Essex and with various stores, a, a bike shop in Capel Street, uh, you know, this was what they were intent on. But I think, you know, I would agree with Connor. I think far-right ideology is probably far too strong. There are people, certainly, that have far-right tendencies. Uh, I'm not sure they're driven by any ideology. Uh, I think some of it, actually, one thing that we haven't mentioned, there is the disaffection, but also fear. And there are people that are fear mongering. They're spreading fear about things like migration, uh, immigration. Uh, They're spreading fear about, for example, COVID vaccines, as they have done. So they will use any trigger to actually spread fear and to mobilise people. I also, what you see on social media is these people actually, they're a loose affiliation. They're not a grouping as such, they're a loose affiliation. But some of them, the more sinister types, are supported by people in the UK and the US. And they're supported and actually driving this division. And, and can I ask about the, the manner in which they've been handled? Because obviously one of the difficulties facing the, the police in this instance, facing Garda Shikona in the, in the last number of months and years has been you don't want to be so heavy handed that you create martyrs to the cause in how you police. So some of the things that we would have seen outside the doll, effectively TDs trapped within the doll and staff trapped in the doll for two hours. But the view being it is better that than to be seen to be heavy handed. Was that a mistake? Is the, are we now reaping the legacy of that? I think there's an opportunity to press a reset button here. I think what we need to focus on is proactive preventative policing. Uh, you know, I, we ha- this isn't the first time we've been faced with situations like this. These things have happened in the past and always the approach has been uh, disruption and dissipation. So to actually follow the intelligence, to get in there, to disrupt the agitators and to make sure that they don't achieve their aim. So I think, you know, it's time for a reset button and it's an opportunity to press a reset button and look at how we approach these things. And also in relation to lawlessness and certainly, you know, even um, discussing with colleagues here earlier, uh, you know, I, I was away for most of COVID when I came home. There was certainly a different atmosphere in the city. I'm in and out of the city regularly. I walk in and out uh, of the city. I'm in the city morning and in late in the evenings. And it was definitely a different atmosphere. The tempo was different. And, you know, for example, you can see uh, young guys, and it is mostly guys going around in puffer jackets on trials bikes, uh, doing wheelies up and down the road, wheelies on footpaths, forcing people off footpaths out in the middle road in broad daylight. And I think it's that sense and also passive aggressiveness that is there around the city, particularly uh, in the city centre, uh, where people are hanging around and gathering. And th- and I think where you need for that is very proactive, very visible policing presence. Which we have seen since then. I mean, if you look at what we have seen on social media since Thursday night, we have seen the equine unit out mm-hmm. in force and we have seen the kind of guard the response. But there's there's one question on this, and Peter, this is a, an interesting one from a legal perspective. We got a text yesterday from a guard that I thought was... Um, emblematic of the challenge that I imagine the frontline police must have in this instance says Anton as a guard I'm sick to my teeth 
of the, quote, shite being spouted by politicians all day. If we went in and battened, we would be hammered by the same politicians. We are screwed if we do and screwed if we don't. Why join my job? God knows. Proud of my colleagues last day. Most people wanted us to beat them so-called patriots off the um, streets. But years of hassling management has led us to question using force. There's more fear in my job now than ever. That has to be a big challenge for frontline police because if you get it wrong, you yes. face serious repercussions. Yeah, again, Noreen, we were talking and we were reminiscing about Robocop. It was a, f- a celebrated case many years ago when there was a protest in the streets and then the guards were sent in. And, you know, the level of reaction from the guards was deemed at the time to be disproportionate. Uh, but then you see what was happening in O'Connell Street on Thursday evening. And I think the general view amongst the public was we want the guards to go in and take a robust response. I mean, everybody saw that horrific footage of the guard, kind of middle-aged guard who was surrounded by all these guys coming from various different actions. It was, you know, it was it was absolutely horrific what he was experiencing there. And you want a kind of a robust and, and heavy response in relation to that. It's all about proportionality. It really is, you know, but the guards have to have the freedom. If they're under threat, I mean, they have they have full rights to defend themselves and, you know, and in situations like that, they're clearly under threat. So they have the, the ability to respond. If this situation is one where a, a more gentle approach is required, well, then they have to apply that more gentle approach. The guards have huge powers. It's very important that they have huge powers. I mean, they're very important in Irish society to keep order in Irish society. But presumably a big element of this is that you have enough manpower on the ground to be actually to make those decisions. Because what we hear is that there was a sort of an emergency call, according to some of the papers today, that went out <clears throat> at 7pm on the day in question, calling in Gardaí from as far away as Sligo. That doesn't sound like they have enough people on the ground. No, and I think I think there is problems that obviously, ignoring you much, know this much better than I do, recruitment is a problem in the guards. You know, numbers, it's it's not as attractive to, to young people. And now we're allowing older people in as well, but it seems to be, they seem to have a challenge getting numbers. Um, and obviously, look, I mean, you can say on the day in question, obviously something happened at lunchtime, which was absolutely horrific, as Connor has described. Um, there was a mood building in the afternoon. I didn't tune into it, but I was actually at a soccer match yesterday my son was playing uh, and a parent who was watching his son playing in the same match and who's a foreign national he was saying he was aware of it on he, he tuned into this at about 3, 4 o'clock and actually went home from work early and he was working in the inner city at the time um, and you know so, so, the, so the, the information was out there there was a form of intelligence now mobilising guards from all over the country Noreen you're the expert I'm not going to comment on that but I mean that is it, it is challenging but um, you know it's it's it's, it's uh, yeah. Connor wants to come in that and Noreen I can in one second just on how that actually works mm-hmm. and is it possible to do before that Connor you wanted to make a point no, I went in on Friday of a friend who has a business in Oconn Street and I was actually witness to the clean up and, and it's very clear to me that uh, on, on Friday a whole lot of people came into town hoping for a rerun of the chaos that we saw the night before and it was very effective the Gardaí swamped the place with, with uh, public order unit and, and it worked they subdued them and they broke up the people and they weren't afraid to use their batons but I do think there's a big problem here I think we were talking about this earlier before we came on air that like there's a guard being charged for manslaughter for pursuing in a car uh, two car thieves or joyriders or whatever you want to call it professional criminals stealing cars and he's now going through the courts and a lot of guards and I spoke to quite a few of them when I was there in Henry Street and O'Connor Street the other night and they're genuinely afraid of producing their batons now because they'll be accused of something or they'll be on a discipline and there's been a huge amount of I would call it petty discipline offences 
taken internally in the Garth. And that's why they're leaving. Like hundreds of them are leaving and resigning. Some of them, even the taxi man took me in here this morning, said his, his relation is leaving and going and has got a wonderful so job in Australia. So do you lay culpability then at the minister's hmm? door? Hmm? Do you lay oh, culpability I, I, I at the minister's like, door? I think it has to, yeah, the book has to stop somewhere and it does stop with the minister. Yeah, the minister is the top of the tree here. I, I think the Garda commissioner needs to reflect carefully on, on the, their position as well. We know, for instance, that as recently as a month ago, 92% or more than 92% of rank and file guard, they have no confidence in their own boss. I mean, do you know what I mean? People have to reflect very carefully. This is a very, uh, what I would call, watershed moment for how we look at law and order in this country. We, we know there's a housing crisis, there's a health crisis, but unacknowledged under the surface for the last three, four years, we've had an unspoken problem with law and order and nobody's addressed it. So I'm not, I'm not, exclusively taking the guards out on this one or, the, or the, the government but they have to take responsibility at the end of the day it's not there's, there's, they can't, this book can't be passed uh, uh, around like some sort of parcel that where nobody's to blame that there are blame and culpability lies at the decision makers the people well, who are in charge Connor Lally was writing this is the uh, Irish Times security and crime editor and he yeah. was writing on social media he said one really worrying feature of the Dublin riots was the apparent reluctance to use force for fear of being disciplined or prosecuted. Something has gone badly wrong when Gardaí feel they shouldn't use force during a riot or any serious public order incident. I assume, though, on the far side of that, Connor, if they get it wrong in the other direction, there will be just the same amount of calls saying this is police brutality and an authoritarian yeah, state. That happened to a friend of mine in the Guards many years ago. We used to, he was actually suspended. It was during the uh, anti-capitalist, I think, uh, uh, marches in O'Connor Street. I won't say his name now on air, but he's a, a big, tall guard. And he 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 had a, a very hard time. He was suspended from work for about six months, and eventually he, the court found him not guilty. And what actually happened in that circumstance, which you know, all the people arrive immediately with cameras and show uh, pictures of people battening somebody. And what happened in his instance is that he was spat at and had stuff thrown at him. I think even some acid or something. And he was responding to that. But the cameras only caught his response. Well, this raises and, one of the and, concerns you know, then uh, or one of the possible responses, which is about body cams, because that is now being one of the proposals that there would be a fast tracking of the legislation in respect of body cams. A lot of uh, texts in relation to that, suggesting that it is a good way to go. Give them the full power to use batons only if they have body cameras on. Another, Anton, I must correct you on your use of the word disenfranchisement to describe the rioters. They are not disenfranchised at all. They are not deprived of rights or opportunities. They simply choose not to avail of opportunities open to them. They are just hate-filled kids who believe anything they read on social media. And social media has a lot to answer for. Well, we'll continue this on, on what can be uh, done, whether it is body camps, whether it is uh, legislative change, after we take a quick break. Back with Norna Sullivan, Connor Lenehan and uh, Peter Leonard after this. A lot of uh, text asking Noreen in relation to the policing, or rather suggesting two things. One, get the armed response unit out. Two, get the defence forces out in support of uh, the Gardaí. Is it helpful to bring guns into this kind of um, public order issue? No, it's not. And I suppose, Anton, the the one thing that distinguishes Irish policing from colleagues overseas uh, and something that both the Angarda Shikhan are very proud of, but also are looked to as models in de-escalation tactics and how that works. And in other places, what you see is a paramilitary style response to, for example, public order. But that's what people want now, isn't it? Well, do you know, is it what people want? And I suppose that's the thing, because actually 
there are so many ways to have a, a graduated response. And I think what Peter said, what we saw happen on Thursday night and evolve on Thursday night, I think that the Gardaí that were on the scene did tremendous work. They showed tremendous restraint. Um, but that restraint is sometimes necessary and has to be proportionate and it has to be lawful. And the guards, all of them sign up to a code of ethics. Everybody is very much aware of their personal responsibility. But it is that paralysis of fear that by doing something and being caught on camera and as Connor and Peter have described, by that been misinterpreted in some way, uh, some guardie can feel paralysed and then it causes a threat and a danger to themselves and to others. To bring and presumably it incentivises those who wish to do harm to goad the guard in question. If you know that they are afraid to take action, what you do is you goad them into taking that action. You goad them into taking action and then you stream it on social media almost instantaneously or a version of it. And that version is not, and we've had cases in the past that certainly I'm personally aware of where it has been portrayed that the guards are doing something such as beating up somebody who is defenceless and actually when it's investigated fully and then it's found that that's not the case, it's a particular version of events that unfolded and in a lot of cases the guards are perfectly justified and I think it is building that confidence or rebuilding that confidence into members of Garchikana. You know, I've been that young woman and uh, and I can empathise with that young man and not so young like our colleague that was isolated on O'Connell Bridge. Uh, it, it's a terrifying place to be. It's an absolutely terrifying place to be and you have this righteous mob, these thugs who are just out to harm you, to harm the people that you are there trying to protect. And this the is the guard, guard, just in case people haven't seen it, there is one piece of footage from Thursday night of a single guard making his way across O'Connell Bridge surrounded by 10 or 12 people who are attacking him on all sides so that every time he turns there's somebody behind him and as you watch it, all you're thinking is don't fall over because it looks yeah. like it's life and death. And, and you know, again, the humiliation for that to be put up on social media. Imagine his family at home and imagine his colleagues watching this. Uh, you know, all of these people go out there every single day and they put themselves in harm's way to protect others, to protect property, as they did in this case. And I think the guards on the night did a tremendous job to bring in uh, the armed response unit into a situation like that would only add fuel to the flames. However, the public order unit have the ability to kettle some of these protesters. I don't even call them protesters. These are rioters. Protesters have a lawful place. Rioters do not. It's breaking the law. And one thing about upholding the rule of law, even when I was with the UN and when we look internationally and you look at what sets a democracy aside is the rule of law and upholding the rule of law. Well, let's look at that then, Peter. The the two suggestions that are being made in respect of what should be done on a policing front to prevent a reoccurrence. One, body cam, so that guards have evidence taken quickly. And the second is the use of artificial intelligence to do facial recognition. The latter of which is seen as by many as running a coach and forth through civil liberties. Well... (laughs) Again, I mean, it, I think I think the the, the guard are at in a very advanced stage in relation to the body cam. You know, bringing in body cams, and I think that would be of great assistance. And I think, you know, the Minister for Justice is going to be assisted in trying to get this through the doyle as a result of what happened. The AI, I mean, AI is all pervasive these days. We hear about it in all aspects of life. I mean, you would imagine that the man hours that the guards will have to put in in order to go through all the footage and try and, you know, because... 6,000 hours of footage, 6,000 hours, but also most of these guys are hooded. They're, they're wearing scarves, so they can't be identified. So the, the trick is to try and match clothing to video footage from elsewhere in the city where they've removed the hoodies and then trying to make the connection. I mean, it's huge, painstaking work. If that can be speeded up, 
uh, by AI. I can't see why there would be any objection in relation to that. AI has to be managed, of course. Of course it does. And there has to be controls uh, and, you know, put in place to 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 its application. Does it not, Connor, bring us down the the route of the police state where uh, totally innocent civilians and citizens find themselves being watched and monitored all the time? You know, many years ago when I was in government, I think the then commissioner was Faulkner, and uh, I asked him how much, you know, this is like 15 years ago, and uh, I asked him how much of indictable crime is now attributable to the cameras, the credit cards, the mobile phone. And he said at that stage, and that's a long time ago in technology terms, 15 years ago or so, uh, he said 78% of indictable crime is prosecuted through electronic means. So that's because of digital records of some digital kind. Digital record in print, you know, close TV in kind of convenience stores, credit card usage, mobile phone usage. And this actually prevents wrongful arrests. This is, a, this is very, very reassuring. I think people shouldn't be getting too alarmist here. That's been going for quite a few years. And absolutely, I mean, years ago, guards used to have to rule out people if, God forbid, one of us was killed after being on your programme. In years ago, they'd have to interview each one of us Whereas now they can just rule out, no, no, clearly wasn't Anton on the hill, kill him because, you know, he was placed here. And, you know, so this is a very good technology. Again, AI is even better again in terms of speeding things up and identifying, if you like, perpetrators of one kind or the other. I think there's one big weakness in Ireland is that, you know, those Gardaí that were sent out on Thursday, they're not issued with hard helmets anymore. This is a very real issue. Like before, all Gardaí, once they joined the force, were issued a hard hat, which would be presumably in their locker at the station, and they could take it out, put it on when they go into a public court. They're not anymore. And they're not also new recruits are not receiving public order training. There was a mandatory requirement to do that. The new recruits are not getting public order training. And I do believe, and I'm not trying to impose a police state, but I do believe that the public order unit should be expanded and should be available. In other words, there should be three or four of those in O'Connell Street. They have an office in O'Connell Street, the Gardaí, and they should be based there and ready and on call in various parts of the city. If you go to Paris, it's very striking, the role of the CRS in terms of maintaining law at night time and danger points. What about that issue of body cams, Noreen? What about that issue of of AI being deployed to look at facial recognition to track people? So body cams is something that Garda Shikana have been looking for for a very long time. As Peter said, it is at a very advanced stage now. The legislation has passed the final stages and I know there is a a procurement process in place. I think facial recognition is something that's absolutely necessary. It is provided for in the legislation that is going through uh, retrospectively. But in situations like this, with that balancing of rights, because yes, you want to have all of the safeguards in place. I I absolutely understand uh, the calls from different quarters for to balance the rights and that you don't have a surveillance state. However, we're talking about the numbers of the guards dwindling and here we look and we see that there's at least 6,000 hours of footage that needs to be reviewed for this and can be very, very useful in actually identifying who the real instigators and perpetrators uh, were at the weekend. So actually... And just so I understand it, so the way that the facial recognition would work is that you input all of that effectively into an AI programme that then finds one individual and tracks through every other camera and says, there's that person. Yeah, so can track right across uh, CCTV, for example. And, you know, again, in other jurisdictions that I'm aware of, what happens is, so, for example, in the UK, all of the uh, shops, all of the business premises, all of the local councils all sign up voluntarily to make their CC available on a database. That CCTV is then used to be analysed. Um, against the the facial recognition piece. So there have to be the safeguards in place, absolutely. But actually, if you take this and a riotous behaviour uh, and the co- 
cost to the state in terms of the uh, 50 million plus uh, to just repair the damage caused, I think it's quite justifiable in this case, but also in terms of manners. Uh, I think it, it is something that would well, be yeah, very to review 6,000 hours of footage will mean 60, 70, 80, hundreds of thousands of hours of guard the time to do a text saying, so these people who cause millions of pounds worth of damage or millions of euros worth will go down to our courts, get free legal aid and the judge will have the neck to tell one of them who earns 30,000 euro a year he might not qualify it instead of saying you pay for your own defence. Um, what about those elements, Peter? The the likely prosecutions, the impact of those prosecutions for the, the people who are arrested, will it make any difference? Will they get the kind of sentences that will dissuade them from doing this again? Well, uh, the, the hope, Anton, is that they'll get uh, appropriate sentences, but you would hope anybody who goes before the courts and is convicted of a criminal offence, wherever they may be, will also be treated in the same way. I mean, we can't go crazy here, Anton. I mean, you know, what happened on Thursday shocked everybody. It was horrific. Pictures went around the world. I noticed the teacher came out and said it was a shame on Ireland. I think a lot of us felt like that. But, you know, to use the old cliche, and I know it's been used a lot over the last couple of days, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We have civil liberties and that's very important. Even in terms of AI, yes, you can confine it to an investigation, but not generally. You can't be, you know, observing people generally and recording their data all the time. I think that would be a massive invasion of civil liberties and nobody would be happy with that. Um, but I think, I think in terms of the laws are there, people were arrested. I mean, I think it's quite impressive that they got 48 arrests after this incident. And seem confident that they'll get more. And, and look at the, the amount of people that were on the streets. I mean, the, the pictures were nearly disproportionate to the amount of people who were involved in this. We saw what happened outside the Doyle. I mean, that was a call to arms as well by these right-wing groups. I mean, there's been a lot of anti-immigration protests over the last number of years. And yet, maybe there was estimated to be about 300 people outside of that. And they were organised. Remember, they brought their gallows along and all that sort of stuff. And then this was a case where they, they assembled after a very emotional and emotive incident that happened during the day. And then a lot of the, the were fellow travellers and they were just, you know, we saw Arnott's, we saw Footlocker. I mean, that was pure old fashioned criminality, you know. One final thing then, a lot of the coverage is talking about the pressure on uh, Drew Harris and particularly the pre- uh, political pressure on Helen McEntee. Um, Connor, throw the, the political hat back on. If you were a betting man, is McEntee going to survive in her position? I don't know. I, I noticed in some of the coverage, certainly uh, members of my own party, backbenchers, etc., were expressing reservations. But like I said earlier, the book has to stop somewhere. I mean, this is a watershed moment. And to be quite honest with you, I'm not picking on uh, on McEntee as such as a person. I think she's a very good person in many ways. But something has to give here. I mean, either either the government responds with very strong action along the lines of, you know, giving guard the Shikona the resources. And there is a big resource issue. Like, our population's increased by 2%. In one year, over the last few years, I think it's a million we've grown population. And that's stretched health, housing and public order. And there's a very strong argument now that the, the Garda force should be proportionate uh, given this increase in population. That There is an, a very serious issue about serious recruitment and stopping and staunching the flow of people leaving the force because they're disillusioned, demoralised and, and, and there's a big, big challenge. Well, we are going to talk about exactly that in a couple of minutes because we're going to be joined by the Minister for Public Expenditure in whose constituency, of course, all of this happened. That being uh, Pascal Donoghue, a text saying Anton shut down Telegram and the likes. That, of course, being the um, social media platforms that apparently allowed for whatever level of organisation happened on Thursday to happen. Big thank you to my panel this morning, that being Peter Leonard, barrister and presenter of the Business Post's Law in Trial podcast, Conor Lenehan, former Minister of State, and Noreen O'Sullivan, former Garda Commissioner. The Anton Savage Show. Brought to you by PwC. Sunday mornings from 10. 
on News Talk.